Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Batya Ungar Sargon, Deputy Opinion Editor of Newsweek. She's written for the Washington Post, the New York Times and the Daily Beast. Batya is the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. I wanted to talk to her because I see her on Bill Maher and she was fantastic on that. She's talked about class in a way that I've not heard it discussed for a long time and the importance that we find new ways of connecting and communicating that our media have bad intentions in dividing us and creating cultural conflicts that aren't going to be resolved. And and sometimes I think they're not interested in resolving. You're going to love this conversation. Here's some of your shout-outs from previous episodes. Listen to shout-outs. Kerry says, I particularly loved the Chris Hedges discussion showing his integrity and passion in his journalism and greater works. I hope ordinary people can emulate such bravery and service in their own ways. Even if censorship, totalitarianism, etc. prevails, at least you and many others resist. And in a sense, mate, like ordinary people, we are ordinary people. Chris Hedges is an ordinary person. I'm an ordinary person. We're ordinary people. What I like about um, Chris is, or what I think he's telling about Chris, is that this is someone that, you know, 10 years ago worked for the New York Times and now can't be on Russia Today. If you want a monitor of how censorship is moving, look at the career of Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Wendy Van Monstu. I love your podcast. I've listened to every one. I'm a very loyal follower and I look forward to listening while taking a walk through a park close to my home. Well, I hope you're doing that right now. I really enjoy your vocabulary and the way you so eloquently express your ideas and questions. It really is one of the highlights of my week. Thank you from Canada. Wendy, thank you very much. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Monica Trejo Worthington, thank you so much for everything you're doing. Your interview with Noam Chomsky is by far the most inspiring yet and every episode has been inspiring. It really did instill in me a sense of hope because it makes me feel we can all, we must all strive to find our own humanity and manifest it in this world to make change please never stop growing and expanding god imagine your work gives me hope and encouragement warmest from new york i can't keep growing and expanding i'll simply pop uh, if you're not a member of my mailing list community please sign up right now go to russellbrand.com and sign up because we do amazing live events on july the 10th me wim hoff and vandana shiva will be live in a field in hay on Y. You can stay there in a tent and participate in the community festival that we're creating together, an opportunity to come together, explore some of these ideas, the point of connection between spirituality and politics. You can see how these ideas necessarily go together and how we can bring about new systems and new communities together. Also, there are upcoming opportunities to ask questions to Yoga with Adrian, that's her real name, and Deepak Chopra. So sign up to my mailing list right now. If you're looking for other ways to awaken your lovely little mind, look at my Awakening channel on YouTube and subscribe. I did a really good video the other day about ecotherapy. I did another good one about summer solstice. I'm talking about nature and our connection to nature a lot. Have a, go over and look at these videos. They're really good. They're beautiful. Plus, they're outside at our HQ. And they're pretty, and pretty they look kind of gorgeous as well. Let me know you think and comment on those videos uh, also as you are a luminary subscriber please listen to my podcast above the noise the latest one is outdoors helping a uh, listener tracy to find strength and resilience and call upon the natural power that is abundant and all around us but now though it's time for batya ungar sargon on under the skin trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes, that, that, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Hello. Hi. I can't believe I'm allowed to have a podcast with you. I 
can't believe I'm allowed to be on a podcast with you. <laughs> this is a fantastic situation for both of us then. Hi. So do people call you Russell or Russell Brand? I mean, what is the etiquette in such a situation? If I get back here, I prefer to be called Your Royal Highness, <laughs> Russell Brand. <laughs> Of England, UK. Now, it is time consuming, I, I acknowledge, but these protocols just, they're, they're a helpful way of avoiding the potential pitfalls of any social interaction. It can be so fraught. We're very primitive. We're apes. So true. Thank you for coming on. I'm, I'm a, a, a fan of yours, Batya. Am I saying your name right? Oh, my God. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, there's, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, and even more now that I've met you. But initially, my, the main areas that I'm interested in, in particular, you talk about the like the um, woke media and the negative impact that it's had on our culture. Now, like I would say that the aspects of wokeness, if we're going to just deploy that term for convenience, that are seems to me are um, advantageous, are benign, is like that formerly and perhaps presently underrepresented groups or have a voice. People should be compassionate and kind. People should be open to the enormous number of ways that people might live. Do you then fundamentally not think that that, that the, the, the sort of the broad list I just offered are the motivations for the emergence of wokeness, as it were, in mainstream media? Do you think there is some other agenda at play? Oh, wow. Okay. So you brought up two things that I definitely want to talk about. One is motivations and one is kindness. So um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I'm a huge fan of your YouTube show. And one of the things that really stands out to me about your show is that um, you do a very rare thing. I think is a really important thing, which is um, you and maybe three other people on this planet um, have come to the realization that you can be incisive in your critiques and still prioritize kindness over everything. Like that is very, very, very rare. And I think that that is like, that is the mission, you know, is to be incisive in your critique, to, to hold power to account, but never to justify cruelty, even to people you disagree with. So, so that is, I'm, I'm so honored to be here. And I, I want to talk more about how you arrived at that, because I always want to know how people found their way to that position. Um, in terms of motivations, this is actually one of the areas where I think you and I maybe disagree a little bit, having watched um, your show so much. To me, the woke culture that is sort of really, um, tearing at the seams of our society, but more importantly, uh, disenfranchising the working class of all races. Um, I, I really do think that a lot of the people pushing this, a lot of the people at the forefront of a lot of the mistakes that have been made recently and continue to be made, whether it's globalization, whether it's NAFTA, whether it's COVID policy, lockdown policy, or whether it's wokeness, I think the problem is that a lot of these people, like their motivations are good. And there's this great Yuval Levin quote where he says, um, Washington would be a much easier place to navigate if everybody showed up and was like, hey, 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 I'm going to get all the money and all the power. But it's not. People show up and they go, I'm going to heal the world. I'm going to fix this nation. And I look at the people who I think are the wrongest about everything, and I just can't help but feel like they're making big mistakes, but they, they came to Washington because they thought they could make the world a better place. These woke people really think that they are representing Black Americans, even though you know 90% of Black Americans disagree with everything that they say. They really 
really, really believe that. Now, at the same time, and here's where I think we would agree, they are lining their pockets with the proceeds of this mistake. So these errors that they make in the name of social justice end up time after time after time benefiting them economically. And so that's where the, the tension comes in, right? How do you hold these people to account and say, look, this is your economic agenda and you're disenfranchising working class Americans. You're actually making them poorer in the name of social justice, racial justice that never comes. You know, you think you're doing the right thing, but actually you are benefiting economically from this and widening the divide between you and the working class. I think that's sort of the big the big question is how do you make that case to them in a way that recognizes their humanity, holds them to account, but doesn't sort of demonize them beyond their motivations, which maybe are good. Certainly you're right that we ought to be optimal in the way that we relate to each other. And I felt before that when we fall into cynicism, the side of the debate that we sit upon becomes almost redundant because we're participating at the level of almost a frequency, if you'll forgive the word, uh, in a kind of a malevolent space. When I spoke to Brene Brown one time, she said um, that, like, do you think that people are fundamentally doing the best they can? Mm. And, and I guess in the, that context, we were talking about maybe drug addicts and, mm. you know, like uh, people in various underclasses around the world that are junkies and trying to bring up kids. And I said, yeah, I do. I'm optimistic about human beings. I'm optimistic. And I suppose my cynicism rises to the fore when we're discussing people within those uh, establishments who, um, according to your, uh, like, you know, the, the, what you just said there, Batya, are acting legitimately with benevolent intention inadvertently profiting from their well-meaning ineptitude. One question that sort of like uh, feel, uh, that I feel like I ought raise is why do you think that class politics in particular is extracted from the woke discourse if they are operating within the bounds of good intention? Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the woke revolution is the latest stage of the left's abandonment of the working class. So, yes. you know, over the last 50, you know, 50 years ago, across actually the developed world, the left represented labor, represented workers, right? You know, over the last 50 years, they've really come to represent the college educated, you know, these overeducated coastal elites um, who are, because of the economy created by, you know, a, a neoliberal handshake agreement between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans, they created an economy that works really, really well if you're in the knowledge industry and really, really poorly if you're working class. And what happened was you had this great sorting to where a lot of liberals, you know, if, if you grew up, let's say, in rural America, you know, and you were smart, you would go to college and then you would move to a city. Your kids would then grow up in this sort of meritocratic rise. They would also go to fancy universities, right? So there was this great sorting to where that looks like it's partisan, but it's a class sorting as well because what we have in America right now is these cities where, you know, because these sort of very overeducated meritocratic elites who marry people just like them, now they have a combined income of $300,000, $400,000, and they're looking to buy property in American cities, jacking up the prices of housing so that the gap between rich and poor just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the only place you can find the middle class in America now is, you know, red America, right, where there's still sort of the remnants of industrial, you know, industrial towns and, and, and a working class that still can access a middle class lifestyle because housing prices are not so insane. Um, so I think that 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 sort of class divide to where the left became identified with people who actually were in the top 10 
10%. Um, that's sort of where a lot of this comes from. Like the last stage of that is how do you justify that if you're on that side and you think you're on the side of the little guy, right? That sort of, con what do you do with that? Like now I live in Park Slope, you know, I make 200,000, my husband makes 200,000, our children are in private school. We feel poor because we have no disposable income, you know, but we know that we're making all this money, but we think we're on the side of the right. Like, how do you justify that? I, my argument in the book is that they, with best intentions, they shifted the site of inequality from class to race and gender because it allowed them to avoid analyzing their own implication in class inequality, how they benefited from it, essentially. I completely agree with that analysis. And it's something that can be traced, like whether it's like when I had a conversation with Matt Taibbi on this show, he talked about how that in 1984, conveniently, the Democrats accepted a different kind of uh, corporate funding that, that altered their ideology. We could see what the rise of Clinton meant in, in your country and the rise of Blair in ours. And in, the, in particular, the rise of Blair meant sort of like historic ties between the trade union movement and the Labour Party were severed. And it is evident that in order to main that that political parties, in order to retain a degree of cultural legitimacy, had to find ways of addressing inequality that did not affect their economic interests, which now from a funding perspective and from a broader, perhaps less uh, visible perspective, were in total alignment with uh, like the corporate world, shall we say. Um and it, whilst uh, I, I, I like that you make the distinction between like uh, ordinary, if affluent Americans that are ultimately practitioners of this woke ide ideology or its adherence, and uh, and potentially the way that this piece of interesting social engineering has taken place, because what. I feel that we, we're being invited to believe at the moment is that power is utterly diffuse, exists nowhere, and that our best advantage is to enter into a kind of digital tyranny uh, or, and a technocracy where we... <laughs> That we don't have a cultural and social vision anymore. But when you describe the kind of like, you know, the, the, how the past couple of generations have led us to where we are now, it seems impossible to reverse alter or redirect that without some kind of managed intervention, without some kind of state agenda to interrupt the kind of what feels like the economic inertia of the situation. How would this be altered? How would this be changed? And do you make a distinction between the people that, you know, that are just like, you know, recognize it's nice to put up a tile for doubt of doubtlessly important movements like you know blm or like you know gender equality movements and you know, all of these things i agree with these principles what i disagree with is the utilization of these ideas in order to mask an agenda that generates economic inequality and demonizes working class people everywhere that's the bit i disagree with and it seems like you see it the same way yeah i mean i guess i would say i think that they're that the biggest source of power in America right now is latent and it's with the people and it's with their rejection of the role of politicians. I'll just give you one example of this, I think was really stark was, um, COVID. Um, so you had this sort of like the expert class demanding that we lock down, demanding that we treat each other like lepers, demanding that we stop being humans. And you just had at some point, the American people say no. And 
that's how the pandemic ended was like the crisis in the expertise class, you know, the crisis in their credibility because they became politicized and because they were treating Americans like dirt and looking down their nose at Americans who don't have these stupid educations where you learn nothing. And, and the people said no. And they said no in Democrat led cities too. Like they just were, we, they were dumb. That's how the pandemic ended was people have lost trust in, in the expert class and they've started to give it to each other again. And I think that the power that's latent there is enormous. And when I look at what I want for, for, for America, what I want for my nation, you know, I don't know that it's even things that necessarily the government can provide, even in the best case, like in terms of like, you know, uh, uh, equality in terms of all of the things that we really, really care about. I'm sure you and I both really, really care about, you know, I, I ask myself like, well, what role does the government really have in many of the things that we need? One example. Okay. Um, you know, we have this huge in income inequality problem. We have this huge class divide. The number one thing that would, that would go a long way towards resolving a lot of that class divide. If I could like snap my fingers tomorrow, it would be for every child to be born in wedlock. Now that sounds super conservative, but that is just an economic fact that men who get married, they make radically more money and their children are upwardly mobile. Now, the, the fact of the matter is, is that you know 70% of black children are born out of wedlock. A similar number of working class white children are born out of wedlock and their, um, their economic fortunes are downwardly mobile as a direct result of that. Now that doesn't mean that corporations shouldn't be paying people more, they should be. It doesn't mean that we don't have a housing crisis. We do. It doesn't mean that we don't have a healthcare crisis. We do. But there's one thing that would have as much of an impact as all of those things put together that I want the government nowhere near, which is people should get married and have kids in wedlock. That is how you protect your child's future. And I don't want that to be the case. I'm on the left, right? But, but that's just what the economists are in total agreement about left and right. And I don't know that that's the government's job to do that. So I think a lot of the things are cultural. You know, I think like um, minimum wage is another great example. A minimum wage of $15 an hour is starvation wages in most American cities cities and it's but it's a you know it would be a decent wage wage you know mill in georgia you know you could you could you could probably buy a house on that at some point it makes no sense to have one minimum wage that's not a living wage in the place where most minimum wage people are working right that makes no sense what we need is a cultural revolution on the right that would shame corporations from not paying their workers a living wage the way we've managed to do that with wokeness, right? Like we've managed to shame them into thinking like they have to boot Dave Chappelle, right? We need that, but in the other direction, in the actual material direction. And I just feel that a lot of this stuff is maybe not the government's job. It's the job of the people. I do agree that centralized state power, particularly in the way it's been experienced in the last century, generates problems. And actually, more broadly, centralized power, whether corporate or state, generates inequality. And it ultimately is a form of tyranny. I mean, centralized power could is a synonym for tyranny in some regards. When we make a moral argument for, you know, or against, I suppose, marriage, though, I feel that the whilst I recognize that what you're saying is statistically undergirded, it feels like we're making, a, for me, the error that is made is a point in the individual as the repository for culpability in, in problems that are pan-cultural and, and broader. What I mean by that is 
like in the same way that the opioid crisis, you could say, bloody hell, a lot of people are junkies all of a sudden, aren't they? But if you look at it, you start seeing that oh, particular substances were being promoted and pre- aggressively prescribed and that there were there were systemic problems that led to that. I I feel that, you know, like, yes, uh, domestic stability is going to be have a great impact on the life of any individual. And, is, you know, given the, all, all else being equal, I reckon it's favorable to be born in those conditions. But how do we and how can we significantly reorganize a, what amounts to a hegemony like the current globalist technocracy and the march towards digital uh, dictatorship? are going to require at some point a counter-hegemony. When you talk about the latent power that people could harness, the uh, for me it seems like that what is required is an, an emergent populism that is able to sidestep the cultural conflagrations and studied fissures that are being opened by a a media that benefits, it seems, in various ways, commercially and culturally, from a, a divided population. For me, it's, it feel, for me, it feels like we need to start to cultivate a new conversation that people on the left and the right are going to be able to get behind. Now, whether it's um, the, the the issue, I feel that one issue that I'd like to raise with you is the idea that both like, that all things are a subset of a fundamentalist economic ideology, i.e. the reason that you can't have uh, objectivity in science is because science is a subset of a financial ideology uh, and put colloquially only studies that will ultimately be profitable are being undertaken. No one's clinically trialing unprofitable drugs. Media is a subset of a financial ideology. Media organisations that cannot accept advertising revenue from particular corporations are not going to succeed, although there are some emergent models that potentially that I'm participating in that could challenge that. So what, can you talk to me a little, Batya, about populism, about ideas that could perhaps unify uh, ideologues, ideologies even, uh, from the left and right, and, and what is the vehicle for this? And do you think within the systems and institutions in America currently, there can be a regalvanization, a revivification, or do there need to be sort of alternative political models presented? So that's just a simple little question there. Um, yeah, totally simple. G- giving you all easy ones here. Um, um, I, 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 I used to totally agree that um, the economic question was the most important one. And I'm now reporting my next book. And I talk to working class people every single day. I've been flying around the country trying to get a sense of what their lives are like and what their work is like. And um, there are so many issues um, that to me, well, I'm religious. So like they, they just seem like a real spiritual crisis. There's a spiritual crisis. There's a crisis in meaning that I think a lot of that came from big economic decisions, things like NAFTA, uh, you know, the offshoring of, of great working class jobs that provided middle class life, like for sure, like there was um, economic, there were economic decisions that were made there uh, that that had this spiritual impact. But I look at the opioid crisis and I, I think like these people are miserable and they're committing they're they're committing suicide through through overdose through refusing to get vaccinated right through a lot of like different means because their lives don't have meaning they don't see themselves as an essential part of the fabric of american society a lot of that is economic you know if you're a working class person and you can't support your family you know and you're a man i mean what kind of impact do you think that's going to have right but but there is there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle that i do think are sort of 
um, beyond the economic, beyond the structural, beyond the political. You know, most of the people I talk to, you know, if they're on social media, they're on Facebook. I mean, they're not really impacted by Twitter. Twitter sort of like where every, everything you're describing happens. But I think I read somewhere that, you know, 85% of um, political tweets are sent by um, women 50 and older who are Democrats and white, you know, like that. So that gives you like, a, you know, it's like it's Twitter is like where the Karens hold sway, right? And force government to respond. And um, I just don't know that I agree that, like that that is sort of, it's bad it's bad that our government has become irrelevant and cannot govern anymore and can't pass the things that people want to see but i don't know that that is necessarily where yeah i'm a populist and i think the answer to that is populism but i i think the power is latent and it's there and i think a lot of the problems are things you know that we as americans need to start doing for like st stitching back together the fabric of society is not something i want my politicians involved in you know i it's something i want the american people saying no to politicians and you're seeing that they're boycotting politics they're boycotting the media you know they're boycotting you know a lot of big tech and i so i take a lot of hope from that um and 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 i think that the goal is is just to get people to stop allowing people at the top to convince them to hate their fellow americans because they have a lot more in common than the than the elites want us to know yeah i agree with that as well well um Batya, um i think you uh talk a lot about how um, all news media outlets are trying to appeal to the same limited demographic. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, you know, the golden age of American journalism, let's say like, you know, the 18th century, 19th century and 20th, early 20th century, um, you, you had the, the, the media was totally partisan. So this is a thing that I think people, people like to complain that our media is partisan, actually that it's becoming more like the UK where every publication has a kind of political bent and everybody knows what that is and you get the paper that appeals to you. But in the golden age of American media, um, the media was very, very partisan. It was just partisan on behalf of the masses. So you would have a situation like 1920s New York where there were so many communist newspapers that you could be a communist and have five communist newspapers that you would never dream of opening because they were the wrong kind of communists, right? Like that was the situation. There were so many working class Americans and they had such a plethora of choices. And being journalists, being a journalist, it used to be like this very working class trade, you know? Like the kind of person who became a journalist was like, actually probably someone like you, the guy sitting in the back of the classroom who can't stop cracking wise, who has like a real way with words and hates authority and like the teacher's constantly kicking him out and like, but he's so great. He makes everybody laugh and he feels like it's like, yeah, that's why I was put in this classroom is to give this teacher a hard time because fuck him, who gave him power over me, right? And he was so anti-authoritarian, maybe he had terrible parents that he couldn't go work in the factory because he couldn't listen to directions and he would have been dangerous to everybody around him. So instead of going to the factory, like everybody else in his class, you know, he would become a journalist, right? And when he went to be a journalist, he would be introduced to politicians and he would be exactly the same way he was in that classroom. He would think it was his job to defy that authority and demand justice on behalf of the little guy that he lived with, that he still lived in those communities. That was like most of American journalism. And, but that same thing that happened those fifth, last 50 years where Democrats started, you know, they abandoned the working class. They started to rise economically with that tide of that economy they built. That's really good for people in knowledge industry jobs. Journalists started to become more and more highly educated. 
educated. They started to make more and more money. And now they're really in the top 10, but you really have to come from money to even become a journalist here. Actually in the UK, it's even worse. It's like the top 2% or something, but you have to go to these really fancy schools. You have to take all these unpaid internships. So if you're working your way through college, you can forget about it. The New York Times, NPR, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, these people take their interns from the top 1% of universities. And there's no more local news. It, it sort of disappeared, right? So the class of journalists became like, they, there was just a status revolution. They went from being the little guy demanding justice from the powerful to part of the powerful. They go to school with the pol- people who end up being politicians that they cover. They live in the same neighborhoods and all this stuff. And at the same time, the digital media, um, it, it, the way that digital media works is um, you're, you're, the way you measure success. I mean, you know this from your show, but is in terms of engagement, right? right? How many people were engaged? And, you know, it's something probably you also have noticed is like the most engaged people are always the most extreme. So if you're the New York Times, you suddenly have this like overeducated elite class of journalists, but you want to be catering to the kids they went to school with who are now living in the same expensive cities because their data is the data that, you know, matters that they can sell, that they can make a profit off of. Oh, luckily for them, they know exactly how to appeal to them and how to appeal to their emotions because their newsroom is made up of that exact same class. And so when you used to have the situation where like, you know, a newspaper, let's say you'd have a town that was like 50% Democrats, 50% Republicans, right? And then you had, um, you know, a a, a one newspaper in this town, right? So, so this, so this newspaper, right? Let's say in the seventies, right before the big sorting, the guy who owned that paper, he could make a choice. I could let my journalists report the news in a lefty version, right, and and get all of the Democrats, but then I lose fifty percent of the townsfolk. If I report the news straight and have an, a balanced editorial page, I can get the whole town to read my paper. Today in digital media, it's the exact opposite. They don't want any of those other readers and viewers. They only want the 6% of Americans who are progressives, who are affluent, who are living in these coastal cities. Like it's very targeted. And because digital media allows you to see who everybody is, who's reading you and your journalists know how to get them, how to get their emotions going because they know what makes them emotional. Like it was like this sort of marriage between a new profit motive and then a journal journalistic class that was like uniquely situated to talk to those people. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. Also, though, that um, I can, as you described that, Batia, it became clear that men, like when you get to the data capture part of that, that is, again, how the economic imperatives bias the reporting of the news that, and also, though, how it's led to um, an inaccurate understanding of Americans, let's say, cultural life, because if you read these newspapers, if you watch these TV shows, you might feel that this is the cultural temperature. But actually, it's a very small subset. So in a, I suppose that the, 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 what that suggests to me is that there is a, as, when you talk about latent power, that there are that this latent power ultimately is a psychic and spiritual phenomena that you're dealing with the p- energy of individuals the attention of individuals the potential ability of individuals galvanized and motivated by a relevant ideology to 
transition out of one set of social ideals and into a new set of social ideals. It seems that there's been a sort of a, in a sense, referring to the earlier part of our conversation, a sort of a, a cultural coup in terms of the kind of a linguistic alteration and cultural paraphernalia that fatically represents a set of ideals within this sort of like, you know, movement of progressivism. Again, to reiterate, when it comes to actual racial, gender, equality, these are ideas that I'm, I'm of course, supportive of, but I've always been cynical about the de the deployment of these ideas in corporate and media spaces in the same way that I don't think that Unilever particularly care about green issues and climate change, but that they will utilise these ideas where convenient. When it comes to um, rebooting, reawakening a dormant class that previously had, as you say, five communist newspapers to choose from and a sort of a somewhat robust social democratic political movement and, you know, even media class. Uh, to now uh, a situation where they're uh, unrepresented, ignored or demonised at best. I, what kind of political movement do you think is required to reawaken them, given that the most recent examples appear to be sort of ethno-nationalist movements, or at least they've been rendered as such, such as, um, you know, Trump, for an obvious example, Brexit in our country, and even in countries like India with Modi or whatever that dude's called, you know, like sort of where sort of like these retroactive kind of nationalist ideas are reawakened because precisely because they probably have a sort of a nostalgic tug that the progressivism by its nature cannot incorporate what do you think would be a, a more legitimate set a, a legitimate manifesto or what would be pieces of a legitimate manifesto that m might reawaken this dormant class well so we're very lucky in america because this country was founded on an idea rather than an ethnicity um, and of course it was racist for a long time it, it took it took many many hundreds of years to um, separate out that idea from uh, the racism, the structural racism, the systemic racism, I mean, obviously starting with slavery, Jim Crow, and even today with um, some of the way that policing is done, we're still working on this, but um, you know, when you listen to someone like Steve Bannon, who's not someone I agree with about a lot of things, but um, you know, the stop the steal thing, obviously I'm sort of not on that train, um, but he, he says repeatedly that the nationalism we're discussing here is multiracial and multi-ethnic. And he was the number one backer of um, Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania, who was a um, black candidate who was um, the child of rape, actually. Her mother was raped when she was 11 years old by her father, who was 21 at the time. And so she was just a sort of deeply, deeply, um, conservative candidate. And she saw herself as the true inheritor of the MAGA movement. And Steve Bannon was the one who sort of pushed her up there and said, this is the real Trump candidate, even though Trump had endorsed Dr. Oz. So I, I, I see no reason not to believe that the nationalism in that movement to obviously there's racists everywhere, but the nationalism in that movement to me, having spoken to many, many, many people who are in the MAGA camp, it is not racial at all. It's multiracial, but they have a problem with bringing in immigrants to replace them at work, you know, and the left deep called that racist. They called that ethno-nationalist. Um, but, you know, 
Black Americans it, are the biggest group in the Democratic coalition. Up to 85% of them want more rigorous um, restrictions at the border. Like to call those people racist to me is fine. Put me in that camp. I'm in that camp. Like whatever 85% of Black Americans are saying, I'm in that camp. And and to so why why did the Democrats demonize this sort of opposition to open borders as as racist? Again, like it's like I don't think they did that like cynically. But at the same time, they are the number one consumers of, you know, unpaid, underpaid, you know, illegal immigrant labor, whether it's domestic servants, um, 50% of illegal immigrants are employed as domestic servants. And that's not, you know, they're not doing that in middle America, right? They're doing that in blue cities. So again, it's like one of these situations that I think they genuinely believe this is a racial justice issue to bring in the poor of other countries. Um, but at the same time, they are lining their pockets with this ideology. And then they, to hide that unconsciously, perhaps they demonized people who were saying these people are there. You cannot have a wage floor if you have an open border. Like that's just totally obvious. Right. You know, uh, they'll say, oh, GDP rose, you know, with with mass immigration. It's like, OK, GDP for who, though? Right. Like they'll say in the aggregate. OK, nobody lives in the aggregate. Right. That GDP rose for a very specific subset of people who you happen to belong to who happen to be the ones who are setting, you know, the tone and the agenda. So, you know, I, I, to me, the kind of, I think when Trump was out there campaigning on jobs, 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 people really saw him as a tribune, as a finger in the eye of the people who looked down on them. He was their, you know, their tribune. And, and now, of course, that his whole campaign pledge is me, me, me. They stole it from me. They stole it from me. They stole it from me. I think he's losing a lot of support. And I don't know that he's going to be viable in 2024 if he keeps at this clip. So I, I feel like what he represented was this latent, pa this populist power. And again, I agree with him about everything, although I think a lot of his economic agenda was stuff Bernie Sanders had been advocating for that people forget, you know, like getting rid of NAFTA, which Trump did, you know, tariffs on China, Trump did, you know, all this like closing the border. Bernie Sanders used to mock open borders and then he had to do this 180 in 2020. So I, I to me, like that kind of nationalist patriotism, I don't know how I would feel if I was living in Europe in a place where it brought with it all this anti-Semitic baggage or if I lived in India and it was clearly being used to repress Muslims like or in China, right, where it's being used to commit genocide against Muslims. I think I might feel differently about nationalism, but as an American, I feel like that is like a, that was the right direction. And I, 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 I it, the fact that it is unthinkable to see a Democrat pick up that register, I think, speaks to, you know, at a very deep level. What's what's wrong with that party? It was impossible in our country, for example, for Jeremy Corbyn to make a left wing case for Brexit. No one would make the argument right. that Brexit could be right. good for ordinary working British people. It was seen as Brexit is racist if you if you vote for Brexit. So when Brexit happened, people were stuck with that. And also com somewhat comparable to the sort of post-pandemic shift, it's an argument that's had to at some point be abandoned because we have to live ultimately with these divisions. Well, if you've sort of demonised an entire class of people for a, a political decision that they made, whether it was an anti-mandate stance or an anti-remain in Europe stance, if that's been carried but you know electorally then now you have to live within the narrative that you've created even if it is as you have um, explained an erroneous one when you talk about you uh, as you did about that you are a religious person 
I wonder how you uh, align your, um, you know, and I'm assuming that you're Jewish because of the star and, you know, I guess your name and stuff. <laughs> I, I don't really, that's an unusual name, Batia Ungar Sagram. That's an amazing name. <laughs> it sounds like you're from another dimension to me. <laughs> um, like, uh, and possibly you are. Um, but like, how do you, where do you, you know, like, the, here's this thing, see if, see if you respond to this. This is one of those things I find myself saying a lot, and I'd love your perspective on it. There's an, a, a Native American, that's what he calls himself, activist called Russell Means. He said, like, when there was an assumption that Native folks should become Marxist, he addressed this assumption. Thusly, people are saying that we should all become Marxist in our movement for, you know, I don't know, independence or the rights of indigenous folk in America. But he goes for, we see Marxism and capitalism as different sides of the same coin. Both assume that the function of a human life is to toil and labor. Both assume that the resource, that the earth is primarily a resource. We have a totally different spiritual perspective. Now, that, this kind of pantheonistic idea that typically pervades, um, like, you know, sort of, I don't know, indigenous or shamanic sort of cultures, for me, still has relevance and resonance, even for those of us that are, uh, belong to now a monotheistic tradition or an Abrahamic tradition. What do you think as a religious person about, you know, because when you're saying when I asked you about what kind of manifesto would you have if you were trying to reawaken populism, you spoke about Trump's, you know, he just talked about job, 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 jobs. Do you think that that's the best we can offer working people with your labor market? You're going to get better jobs or do you are you open to a different vision, a different way of organizing society that embraces spirituality? I don't mean in a fundamentalist or um, demagogic or dogmatic manner, but brings spirituality, you know, simple values to the forefront of cultural and political life. Um, I would be happy to be the recipient of that, but I wouldn't be comfortable imposing it. Like I, I'm, I really just try to take my cues from the people who I think are underrepresented. Um, I really believe in the wisdom of crowds. I really believe in the, you know, the goodness of the American people. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable imposing that on other people. Um, I think most people, like what we need to do is sort of clear the space so they can live meaningful lives. And part of that is clearly having an economy that works because you know, people need to be able to um, <laughs> feed their families and live in dignity. Um, but I, I, I don't know that I would feel like it's my place to do that. But then don't you think in the absence of that imposition, the de facto imposition is an economic one because that fundamentalist economic reality already exists. And it's and without a counter hegemony, you cannot challenge an existing hegemony. This is the problem, the tension that traditionally exists between sort of uh, old school state socialism and anarchism, for example, is that how do, if you agree that there is corruption, institutional corruption, a kind of corporate statism where there's a revolving door between Washington, big tech and, you know, and Congress or whatever, that lobbying money means that there can be no um, transparency, that there can be no real ideology other than financial ideologies coming out of Washington, but even for the well-intended people that you've spent some time, you know, advocating for, or at least uh, operate, you know, offering a kind of open-heartedness towards, unless there is a kind of, like a, a genuine, like, I'm not saying, right, we've all got to wear these particular clothes and we've all got to pray at this particular time of day. I'm saying that without a genuine challenge to the current economic hegemony, you cannot reorganize society and reorganizing society is what we're discussing. Like, I don't think that you can, by dialing up or down the sort of 
you know the income of like this abandoned 20% of working class people in your country make a meaningful difference do you think that you can and why would we not be interested in 2022 in creating genuinely evolved and different ways of organizing society embracing technology embracing diversity embracing our understanding and awareness of what a real democracy could would look like using in fact stuff that's constitutionally explicit already you know freedom freedom to be individuals and pursue happiness etc um, I totally hear what you're saying. I think the, I mean, cause the people that I talk to, the things they want are really modest. Like they don't, they don't want a revolution. And I don't think they need any of that from me. Like they, the things they want are just like, you know, it's kind of like the same problem that like the original Marxists had with the, you know, the lumpen pro proletariat, right? Like they, you know, you know, Lenin was like so dismayed to find out that like all the, you know, the, the proletariat wanted was lives that were like slightly more like the bourgeois, right? Like they just wanted to own a few things. They just wanted like a few more hours in the day to spend with their kids to feel like a human, you know, like, you know, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with this um, black NYPD detective. All he wants is a better life for those kids in the inner city and for himself. All he wants is not to be demonized for the work that he does, like trying to provide that for them. And, you know, these, so to me, like the problems we have are quite modest, although I agree with you about the lockjam about solving them, which is why I think that the cultural avenue is probably going to be more fruitful because these people are making so much money and power off getting power off of polarization. But so I'm just so focused on these like really modest things like like, you know, like a little home, you know, like they don't want a, a mansion. They don't want a revolution. They don't want they want like just maybe if I could have like a little, you know, little one story ranch that I could pass on to my kids so they could have a few more choices than I did, you know, or, you know, mom in the inner city whose kid is like has to pass through, you know, gang violence to get to some shitty ass school where they don't even teach him how to read like. You know, like the, all they want is like these very modest things. And I totally agree with your analysis about why they can't have them. But I think to me, it's like, well, okay, how can I, how can I be a cog in a, a reworking that will get them those modest things? Say, for example, what you said about like, you know, property there, like the, you know, just the one story ranch thing, you know, that you're aware, I'm sure of what's happening in American real estate, the way that it's been, you know, essentially being sort of centralized that that post the various crises of the last 20 years, notably 2008 and the pandemic that it's seen a sort of a, ultimately a centralization of, of property resources. And and, and as for the, C, the, uh, the NYPD uh, cop there, I... For, I don't see how centralized power, whether it's state or corporate, can deliver solutions at a local level. And I believe in the devolution of power wherever possible, democracy wherever possible. And what I've learned, see how you obviously as a, a proper journalist are like talking to people, learning about people and, and the way that you have and the way that your books uh, collate. Um like you, you, it seems to me that you've come to some some conclusions that are similar, but certainly comparable to the ones that I've learned as a, a comedian touring and talking to people, and you know, frankly, with ambitions that go beyond entertaining. What we're doing is, uh, please God, the sort of creation of a movement that fused together spiritual ideas and political ideas, and are universal enough to include people from a, a wide range of political backgrounds. One of the things I've sort of noticed is people just want to be left alone that's what people want they want they want people telling them what to do and like the, the one of the ideas that i've been playing with for a while and trying to understand 
is that if people want to, like, say I've had conversation, I've had conversations with Ben Shapiro, say, who's like a you know, traditional conservative and like sort of, a, if not an orthodox Jew, certainly a pretty strict uh, practicing Jew. And I've also speak to people that are like totally down with very progressive, gender fluid, ultra sort of modern takes on what it is to be human. And it, it we... We have to, I believe, respect the rights of both of those groups and recognize that people are going to have to, at some point, have to be left alone to organize their own cultural and social lives. So um, it becomes, uh, what challenges do you think we're going to face and how can we bring that about when, if a particular section of the media has been co-opted, if the, you know, the financial, not the financial sector, but like the corporate sector is willing to sort of pay lip service to these ideas and how do we ever marry, how do we create a kind of a consensus and a mutual respect from both sides when it comes to, because even like when you look at the discourse in like what have come to be known as right wing spaces, there's a lot of, um, what I want to say, cynicism and kind of unkindness, I feel, and yeah. a, a lack of kind of love, I sometimes sure. think, when discussing these ideas. What do you think about that stuff? No, I totally agree about the lack of love. Um, I think, actually, this comes back to something you asked me earlier, I didn't really answer well, but, you know, for a long time, the left, I think, was at the forefront of really important social revolutions and cultural revolutions around what we now call woke issues. So like race and gender, right? You know, it took many, many years to sort of undo the work of segregation. And definitely the left was at the forefront of that. It took many, many years to get, you know, 96% of Americans to say they're okay with interracial marriage. That was a fight that the left waged and won successfully. Gay marriage, right? Took many years to get gay Americans equal protection before the law. That was the left waged that fight and won that fight. And now 65% of Americans support gay marriage. That includes a lot of Christians, right? Who now say, yeah, I support that right, right? So a lot of these issues, the left was at the forefront of moving America to a place where now most Americans are sort of on the same page about equal rights. The problem is, is that, um, they didn't just like lay down their arms and say, my God, you guys, we won. This is so amazing. Like, can you believe who would have thought the Republicans would be on the side of gay marriage and, you know, equal protections for black Americans? Who would have thought that a Republican president would release 5000 black men from prison? You know, like who that was President Trump's first step act. Right. You know, who would have thought? But they didn't lay down their arms. What they did was they needed to keep going. Right. They they took things a step further. They overreached. They started saying there's no difference between men and women. And you're a bigot if your religion tells you that there is. They started saying, you know, to want to live in a colorblind society, which was Dr. King's dream. That's now racist. Right. Like they took it to a place where you have to have a college degree to even see how that makes sense. Like that kind of academic thinking, right. Where it's like, where it's like, no, whatever you think is intuitive and commonsensical, that's bad. That's the bad thing, right? That, that kind of demonization of the way that regular people think, they, they took it too far. That's what I call wokeness. Certainly not the thing that was initially, you know, when Black people started using the word woke as slang in the 70s, they meant, you know, things that are really important, like combating police brutality and combating mass incarceration. That now, there's no, there's no partisan divide on those issues anymore. The partisan divide now is on these like overreach issues. And so what you're seeing now is for the first time in my life, Americans are getting more conservative because they're turning against these sort of revolutionary powers on the left. And, you know, so the left will say this, these issues now are the same as those issues that you're so happy we won. This is just the next step. But I don't think that's true. Like, I think that it was very clear, you know, that segregation was wrong to many, 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 many Americans like living in the South, even even when it was going on 
there were a lot of people who knew it was wrong because intuitively, commonsensically, it was evil. It was obvious that it was evil. Now they've taken it to a place where they've demonized the commonsensical. And, and so I think that, that that thing where like Americans are turning against that, I, I just, I guess I keep coming back to this, but I think that there's so much wisdom and insight and truth in where the masses are at and what they want for themselves and their families. We all want the same things, which is, you know, to protect our children and our families. And like, so, so I think to me, like the, I, you know, there are certain things the government should be involved in healthcare, housing. I agree with you. Like there has to be some kind of governmental response to that. We have to start, you know, keep the pressure on, but honestly, I think, you know, people have written off the right as a place where populist revolutionary legislation can happen. And I think that that's a big mistake because it seems to be more likely it could be coming from there. And because right now what we're seeing is a cultural revolution on the right to where, you know, it used to be in America, you know, Americans are sort of equally divided between that, you know, that um, the spectrum of like economics and then social, right? So you have a lot of people in America who are socially conservative and economically conservative, and a lot of people who are socially liberal and economically liberal. And then a lot of people who are socially conservative, but economically liberal. And that was Trump's base was people who are socially conservative, but they do think that the government has abandoned labor and has no sense of, you know, responsibility towards them as workers. And they don't like that. And, you know, that's really where I see the right moving. It's a shame. I wanted the left to go there and they, they refused because it wasn't, you know, in their economic interests, as we've said over and over. Um, but so to me, that's, that's like an exciting thing to be happening, even though I still consider myself of the left, but I like, I'm to the extent that the right is going to be willing to take on, you know, the populist economic agenda. I'm going to support that. Wow. You're cool. Hey, like, uh, I agree with you. I think that's really fascinating. It's something I've been thinking about for a little while. It became clear from a few people we spoke to that um, that the Democrats would rather lose and have Trump than win and have Bernie. You know, like we sort of essentially saw yeah. that play out yeah. in real life. A person you might like is, uh, if you don't know him already, is the is Adam Curtis. He's an English Mm-hmm. documentary maker he made films like hypernormalization about sort of the sort of oh gosh what do i want to say hypernormalization is about the management of consciousness and consent through modern media and mm-hmm. how like these new sort of cyber territories were co-opted by the same kind of corporate what do i don't know corporate forces that previously dominated culture and and he talks a lot about the lack of a dominant vision uh, like that, that there is no alternative vision since since like a Clinton I guess onwards we've been dealing like even like Reagan and Thatcher came with a vision like of in a sense dealing with anti-snobbery kind of like you know you can essentially mm-hmm. the American dream no matter where you're from you can da 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 now what Thatcher did to the culture in this country in particular um, you know where, like, people are still feeling the aftershock of that and it, but what he does say Adam Curtis, because I've sort of like myself from the kind of conversation I've been having, the way that our channel has moved, like I've said, you know, I find myself, I like, you know, and also when I, a couple of years ago in this country, Batcher, I like uh, said there was no point voting because whoever you vote for, you're going to be voting for the same set of uh, sort of corporate interests and Mm. like the Labour Party aren't offering you anything. And this was sort of like uh, amounted to a kind of an apostasy in my country. (laughs) And like the way that uh, like I was treated was worse, but like the liberal Guardian type newspapers were worse than the right wing newspaper. And that was a bit of a wake up. Cool. Anyway, Adam goes, um, 
He said, whatever this thing is, what's going to happen? He said, it might emerge, he goes, it might emerge out of the right, but it doesn't need to be the right as we understand it. And in a sense, curiously enough, the, the dissolving of these taxonomies is a significant portion of the woke ideology, the sort of mutability of apparently intransigent ideas mm-hmm. around gender and biology, etc. Like, you know, the fact is, is at the cultural and political level, new sort of ideological alliances can be formed new objectives can be set and the fact is is that it's bloody obvious isn't it that free market economics and state socialism are ideas that were relevant to an industrial age that's frankly over and that that we're going to have to see new political ideologies that can utilize the evolving technological abilities and on whatever limitations come with that that it's going to require new visions and he also said oh yeah that's the other thing i wanted to say that since like then like blair clinton etc no one's offering you a vision people are just saying we will manage decline like that you're invited to manage your own life like you know look at your body mass wear a watch that tells you what your pulse is doing everything is managerial everything is about data nothing is about the unknowable and Mm. more broadly we can sort of trace these ideas back to like the sort of the enlightenment and materialism and rationalism and the exclusion of divinity and the repression of the sublime the idea that a human being is a sacred, glorious, beautiful thing and that in harmony with nature and one another, we can create beautiful... Like, see, I'm down with... like No one's like looking for turning reality upside down. Well, why would it be necessary? We're evolved apes. We can live in little communities. We just want to have some control in our own lives. But like... um. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to dictate, obviously, a, a, a vision to people. But I would like to present a vision to people. And part of that vision for me is that to localize, collectivize, and that people should have as much power as possible wherever possible in their own lives. Not as little power as possible. Not to just meaninglessly consume empty, vapid media data at the, every level of culture, and to spend your whole life spellbound by screens consuming like entertained by a culture that doesn't like you and doesn't respect you and thinks that you're an idiot you know that's you know i want us to try to together conceive alternative to that vision and i think that the roots some of the roots might lie in understanding technology and how technology could be differently utilized to empower rather than disempower people and some of it might be a reinvestigation of sacred principles and that's why i'm interested in what your religious faith means to you so if you'd be so kind as to tell me about that we can move along nicely with this conversation <laughs> Batya. um what my religious faith means to me yeah that kind of thing and then any of remarks that you just might want to make because you feel like it but also like a you know you said you were religious earlier and you've not yeah. given me nearly enough private information <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know i guess it means like i wake up every day and i think like okay how can i be a better jew how can i be a better american and how can i be a better wife that's those are sort of the three you know and um yeah, it means just sort of having a answering to a higher power. Yeah. Like just saying like I'm not mm. it doesn't end with me. Like I'm not the yeah. arbiter of of and there's a lot of stuff in my religion that was really difficult for me when I was younger and I left the religion for a long time and then I came back and said no, that's the whole point. It's like it doesn't end with me. Like I'm not going to rely on my own tastes and my own intellect wow. to arrive at like what's correct and what's not correct and I don't, you know, I mean, I'm not as good a Jew as, as Ben Shapiro is, but, you know, I mean, the idea of seeding that, um, you know, seeding that the arbitration to a higher power and, um, mm. you know, 
that's like very important to me. I don't know how you can live in this world without doing that because it's so depressing, just (laughs) so depressing without that. um, But I want to know about you, like, okay, the thing I open with, which is, have you always been somebody who understood that kindness was at the bottom of everything? Or is that something you arrived at later in life? And if so, what triggered that insight? God, I, I like being interviewed by you. You should have your your own <laughs> podcast. Will you come on? We're going to do some more shows and stuff like that. Will you come on regular? Oh, my God, I'd, I'd love to. All right. That's my response to that question. But I will now answer the question properly. <laughs> um, I've been I was born with a, or either born with or somehow developed a, a, a kind of um, and I, I'll blame the culture for this to a point. I. I a degree of narcissism and solipsism. I became like an entertainer and uh, I was in Hollywood for a while acting and my, and I'm an addict and addiction is selfish because addiction ultimately becomes a kind of a tiny synaptic loop of fulfillment where the kind of principle of the sacred becomes posited on like an, an in initially in my case, or perhaps if not initially, then um, most obviously within chemical dependency, God is heroin. I, when I need, I feel empty. I feel void. I feel unhappy. I use, I feel better. I feel complete. I feel whole. It had a kind of um, in utero Eden-like sense of fulfillment, a totality beyond subjectivity, a fulfillment beyond knowing that there even is a separate world. So my background is I come from an ordinary working class background, single parent uh, in like Greys in Essex, like which is New Jersey. That's it. If you needed a, if you needed a reference, um, like a, so like my like. But when I think about it now, my mum is a really, really kind person. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother was a really, really kind person. And these things were not presented like ideologically. They were just practiced ordinarily. Folk culture. Like when I had Vandana Shiva on here one time and she talked about the sort of like she's like a quantum physicist and a sort of a prominent activist and very big in the agricultural space. She's a guest at this event we're doing on July the 10th in the UK. If you're around, Bacha, you should come over on July the 10th we're doing this event where Wim Hof and Vandana Shiva and some other people are oh, sort of wow. having these conversations. Yeah, it's going to be really good. You can come if you want and speak with me there if you want to. And, and like she sort of said that like a lot of, I talked to her about religion and it's like for her, like as a, sort of, I guess, Hindu Indian woman, she said like, like she was kind of unfussy about religion. She just said, these are the kind of principles and ideas you learn from the women that I grew up with. Like they're not wow. scholarly, even though she herself is a scholar. So I reckon them things were in me, like recognizing, oh, this is how you treat people. Like my nan will just make you food whenever you want food. She'll give you her last pound. She'll let me have her pension book to go and buy drugs <laughs> if that's what's required. <laughs> and that was what was required. And like so, I look in a way I have come to kindness via selfishness. I've come to it via addiction, and I've come to spirituality at the barrel of a gun. And I've come to it having been a sort of a self-absorbed person. And what I feel that has given me is a degree of authenticity. Now, I still vacillate between absolute self-centeredness. There are moments in this life where I only care about what I want and how I'm going to get it. And I'll destroy anything that gets in my way type mentality. Like that helps me to understand, I think, uh, certain systemic uh, challenges that we face more broadly. I understand what it is to be an individualist, a narcissist, a a solipsist. And I see this in like sort of many prevalent world leaders. Um, But like, I 
I recognize it don't work. I recognize that love and kindness are the deep acknowledgement of the most profound truth, non-separateness, that we are all expressions of a divine oneness, that when you are kind and loving, you are living in harmony with the highest truth that there is. You are not separate. You are connected to people, that you can't achieve happiness individually. You're heading in the wrong direction. You can achieve pleasure, fulfillment, distraction, temporary satisfaction. But only with deep purpose can you finally free yourself of, you know, the kind of uh, the kind of conditioned fulfillment we've been trained to accept. Who is it in there? Who is it? But the, the, the problem with individualism and the pursuit of your own individual goals is you don't know how those goals got in there. Who put that idea in there? Who told you what to believe? You, no one knows what emanates from the repository of their unconscious. Nobody knows what their conditioning conditioning has led them to by, by nature of the phenomena. So for me, in a sense, I had to be told to become kind, to live in service, to become humble. And my life experience has been an incredible blessing because I was 30 before I come famous. I'd been a junkie. I'd been like a smackhead and a crackhead before that. So I'd experienced and seen things that even though for a while I thought the solution would be opulence, indulgence, distraction, power. And sometimes I still think those things will work because it's, you know, it gets in you, that kind of training. I, the only thing that makes me feel worthwhile is being is being kind and being of service when it when it comes to it. So I've I've learned it the hard way. I'm a slow learner, but I'm beginning to understand better. <laughs> that was so beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thanks for asking. Normally the guests are satisfied to just sit back and bask in their own wisdom, <laughs> farting out epithets and maxims. But you, from the get-go, have been nothing but charming, insightful, challenging, a, a, a good Jew, I would say, both as a, <laughs> and a, good, a good wife, I assume. Where, where are you? Where do you live? I'm in South Brooklyn. Oh, fantastic. How amazing. Well, yeah. yeah. Bacha, I really like, I saw you on, I feel like it was Bill Maher. I guess like a lot of people probably saw you on that. And I thought, oh yeah, I like this person. Thank you so much. I like you a lot too. And I, I really respect what you're doing with your power and your platform. So thank you for that as well. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Batya Ungar Sargon. If you're enjoying this conversation, you might like other episodes featuring Chris Hedges. Uh, his episode Fighting for Freedom was brilliant. And remember, I talked about him earlier. And Matt Taibbi, How American Democracy Became Pointless. These are like I see these as like little university courses and it's really worth you joining me on them. Remember, you can listen to Above the Noise right now and do a little guided meditation. Also, check out the Awakening side channel for all our latest videos where I talk about mental health and nature and wellness in ways that I hope you'll find interesting and somewhat radical. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.